for joining us today. My name is Manuela Mozo. I'm the executive director of Untitled Art. Um, thank you for joining us for our first of the conversation series in our podcast lounge, generously presented by Inside Weather and also with additional support from Withers Worldwide, our presenting partner of our podcast lounge conversation series. Uh, this is the first conversation of our program, which will discuss virtual and analog technologies addressing the so-called loneliness epidemic, organized by our partner Facebook, who also has a fantastic activation as you enter the main gallery space, which I hope everyone has an opportunity to participate and spend some time with. I'd like to introduce our moderator, James Voorhees, Chair of the Graduate Program in Curatorial Practice at California College of the Arts. He will further introduce our esteemed speakers, so I will pass it to him, and thank you again for joining us. Okay, all right, thank you, Manuela. And um, we also just wanna thank everyone in Entitled for being so a pleasure, such a pleasure to work with, uh, and Kamal as well. So. I just want to say a few words, um, sorry, as we get started. Um, introduce our first panelist, which is uh, Yelena Rachiski, who is the executive producer of Experience at Oculus, and Kelly Sikat, who is the director of the artistic program and, Luke, and Lucas Art, Artist Residency program at Mont Montalvo Arts Center. And today's title of the talk is Only Connect, Creating Virtual and Physical Spaces for Empathy. And some of the things we're going to get into is looking really at like cultural producers who are working both in virtual and analog technologies to address something that has been called the loneliness epidemic. And in doing so, uh, creating different kinds of spaces for authentic empathetic connections, which we're going to get, in, get into this, what this means. Uh, Kelly has organized a project at Montalvo called Social Investigating Loneliness Together, um, which takes place, I believe, over the course of an entire year or more and brings together artists who are investigating how to foster social engagement in an age where social media both connects and isolates people. Oculus is working on a number of projects also around connecting people, um, and one of them is a virtual reality experience called Traveling While Black. Traveling While Black is a documentary that immerses the viewer in the long history of restricted movement for black Americans. So those are just some of the topics that we'll cover um, here in the next 45 minutes or so. But I thought we should begin by really just like beginning um, by talking about like what is meant by this loneliness epidemic and like what are its characteristics, the age, gender, generational, geographic, and maybe Kelly, you could begin by talking a little bit about that. That's great, thanks James. So Montalvo takes on an initiative each year and we're looking at sort of what we deem sort of the most pressing issue of our times to deal with and in this moment in time there's many. And I think for us it just came to the surface that so many people were thinking about loneliness, talking about loneliness. In 2017, the US Surgeon General called loneliness the most common pathology that he was seeing throughout the country. And, you know, in Japan, 
They're designing robots who are tending to people who are at home, stuck at home, and really taking on the loneliness issue through robotics and AI. Um, by 2040, it sounds like about 40% of the Japanese population will be home and alone. So 2018, the UK actually appointed a minister for loneliness, and they created a report um, really looking at connected and creating a connected society. And we use that as our launch point for how we wanted to take this on. What did it mean on our 175-acre property, our public park, our art center, to create moments and opportunities for connection that could be authentic and give people access to sort of real connection? I think the physical effects of chronic loneliness on the body are equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And what they're seeing is loneliness is causing anxiety, depression, heart disease, cognitive decline, sleep disorder, premature aging, and even leading to suicide. And it doesn't appear anybody is immune, right? So it's happening in the population of senior citizens, but it's also happening with our teenagers and our children. We're seeing rising levels of suicide in the United States. And even among just sort of a middle-aged man, you're seeing about 121 suicides a day in the States. And of those, it tends to be about 93 would be men, which is a phenomenal statistic. So we reached out, we looked for advisors, we brought in the Global Health Equity Foundation, and we sort of set to work with our artists on what kind of programs we wanted to put together to take this on. And like the word empathy has come up in a way of like <clears throat> connecting people and creating both analog and physical spaces. So um, I'm curious then like what, what does that look like in terms of an invitation to an artist or in, ter in terms of an invitation to a culture producer to think about empathy within the context of like the lo a loneliness epidemic or bringing people together? So for us it for me, it was important, you know, where our visual artists step in, where our performing artists stepped in. And I turned to the artist Li Mingwei, who does a lot of projects around bringing people together within the context of typically a museum environment, a cultural institution. And he's done a project called The Mending Project. We had spent the summer looking at humanity, thinking about weaving, thinking about textiles, and how that is a sort of a metaphor for bringing to people together. And bringing Mingwei's Mending Project to Montavo was an opportunity to create an installation where our public could come in and work with a volunteer mender. And the purpose was not to have your, your clothes item mended, but to have conversations and to make real human encounters. And our menders recorded that experience. And many of them met new friends, made sort of new lifelong connections, shared stories, had that opportunity to listen to people's stories, and it was really quite incredible. So from physically being together and con connecting socially in physical space, and Yelena, like you've done a number of projects as well that look at bringing people together, but also through virtual reality and digital technologies. Can you t talk a little bit about one of those? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so my, my career spanned across uh, documentary film to working on digital installations to now I focus mostly on virtual reality storytelling. Um, so I've seen this transition between the, the digital and the physical and it's been really interesting to me. Um, 
Something that uh, when, so when virtual reality first kind of had its second coming maybe about five years ago, a lot of people started calling it the empathy machine. And part of it was, I think people were struck by that sense of intimacy you can have in this immersive space within VR. So for instance, you gave the example of traveling while black. And it's a story about segregation. And it takes you back to the Jim Crow days when um, people went through really challenging experience of segregation. And we've all heard about it, but for people that haven't gone through it, have we really felt it? And I think that it's been the power of virtual reality is accentuating these strong feelings because you can actually feel like you're in a situation. So within in this piece specifically, you're in Ben's Chili Bowl and you're sitting next to people who are having these intimate conversations where you normally wouldn't be part of it about the struggles that they've gone through. And it's been interesting watching, um, hearing people's responses after they've watched it where people and, and white people haven't had the chance to be privy to an intimate conversation because if they were in that room, they, people would have noticed they're in that room and they would have been so open. And so having their eyes opened of, um, of something that they wouldn't otherwise have. And then for people who have had that experience, it made them feel more seen. They're like, duh, of course, this is something we still go through. This is our lives. And they have the opportunity to have other people experience it makes them feel better. And so experiencing something like that in, in virtual reality um, is a, essentially like almost a cinematic experience where, where an individual is then inserted into the situation. And it sounds really complex and like a lot of research involved and, and in the making of it. So maybe could you parse that a little bit in terms of like the research and how even digitally that comes into a, a virtual reality space for, the, for the, the, the viewer, I guess, if we call them that? Yeah, and it might be good to break down a couple of approaches you can take with virtual reality. One is that representation of reality through video. So you can bring a, a 360 camera and represent a space and bring it into a virtual space and make someone feel transplanted. But then there's also spaces that you can just create that are completely imaginative and are computer generated. And I think through that, if we go from empathy to the feeling of connection, you can create experiences that are social in nature. Mm -hmm. And you can connect people from all around the world in an embodied experience. Um, I think all of us are text messaging all the time. We're uh, putting our you know, thoughts all over um, various medias. Uh, but like we mentioned, people are still feeling disconnected. The incredible part of virtual reality when people first try it and they go in, especially in a social VR experience, is how surprised they feel about how connected they are to the person that's in front of them, no matter if they're a representation of themselves or a funny looking avatar or someone who creates um, uh, whatever self-expression that they wanna create that's not limited by the rules of reality. Mm -hmm. So it's been really interesting to watch that emergent behavior um, start within these virtual worlds. Well, I'm, I'm curious just to even like, like, you know, delve a little even further, like, what does that research look like in terms of who on your team is actually talking to people to, to gather the data that then becomes part of what the computer generates? Well, with the documentary Traveling While Black, it's, it's actually not that dissimilar from a traditional documentary. Mm -hmm. um, the filmmaker Roger Ross Williams, uh, this is a personal topic for mm -hmm. him. Okay. He's an Academy Award winning documentary filmmaker um, and really knows how to bring human out of the emotion. And they 
brought the story together similar to how you would in traditional documentary, um, but thinking about what works best for VR. So for instance, in virtual reality, um, because it's more akin to real life, you can't create, move the camera really fast, you can't create large cuts. You have to really think deeply about the feeling of presence because the camera is in place of a human. And so you have to think about the experience in a very kind of slow, present way and the story shifts around that as well. So for this project specifically, it was a partnership between Roger Ross Williams, the director, and Felix and Paul Studios, who are VR filmmakers, and they understand how to take story and kind of massage it into a way that really works within this new immersive medium. Okay. All right, so I, I want to come back to a couple other questions, but also just thinking, Kelly, about like how a project is parsed and, and, and also, how do you communicate about it and bring people in to Montalvo to experience it? And so maybe dissect a project and then how it basically reaches the public, which I'm curious to hear more about that as well. So that's a good question. I like this idea of how you slow down and sort of put yourself in a position and try to parse that space. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's part of thinking about how you create an exhibition and how you're going to engage a public. and how you make a space, we're off the beaten path. You have to make an intention to get to Montalvo. So we'll open a show the end of this month, 26th, Sunday, with Keecha Lucas, called the Museum of Sentimental Taxonomy. And Keecha, as an artist, has been taking this sort of, over the last five or six years as I've known her, photographing people's sentimental objects, thinking about sentimental objects, what people hold sacred, what gives meaning to people's lives. And she's now created these set of six photographs which we'll have on view. And while they're on view, will it be inviting people in, both to visit the photographic work, but then to come and meet the artist and bring their own objects to become part of this taxonomy of sentimental works. You know, bringing people in, it's the age-old question of marketing, but it's also using social media. It's, it's trying to track people where they are. And for us, doing a thematic over a year that's really wanting the public to engage in this conversation around loneliness, we're looking at social media campaigns. We're looking at how we share the stories collected from the Mending Project and let them sort of be built upon for this next exhibition and then again for the summer. And so we're asking our public questions through social media, we're asking our public questions on the grounds about what what is loneliness and, and how do we combat it and how do we deal with the perception of of being alone and being lonely or or solitude and isolation and what what is this? Mm -hmm. So it's it's complex, yeah. I'm curious then, who, who, who is the audience? Who are your audiences that you, that you speak to with a project like this? It's a good question. So we're based in the South Bay. So we've got a South Bay arts audience that will come to see what we're doing. We're a public park. Mm -hmm. So we have about 200,000 hikers that come through a year. And we're constantly reaching out to that group of people who have arrived there to visit a park, mm -hmm. to visit a historic property and bring them into the fold of our own programming and what we're doing. Equally, we have an artist residency. We have about 100 artists visit us a year. And so that begins to go viral, where there's ripples from which artist meets the other artists and sharing the work that we're doing remotely. And we've never done anything with VR, but that virtual <laughs> residency 
Yeah, there's something really special about going from physical to virtual and specifically in, in a physical space. But I like how you tapped into that word um, presence because I think that might also be a trigger around loneliness is this constant busyness in our heads yeah. and what forces people to just slow down for a moment and connect with what's in front of them. And when I think about um, virtual reality, you're forced in a way to disconnect from everything that's going around you in the world and being uh, in that experience. And I think that's partially why it's been powerful. The other thing that we've been doing across uh, spanning physical and virtual, and we've seen a lot of this this past year, is connecting immersive theater to virtual reality as a physical installation. And so an actor, there was, there was a project that uh, was part of our team called The Key. It won the, the Lion in Venice this past year, and it was a fantastical experience of what it might feel like to be a refugee, and the story that when you're ref refugees oftentimes take the key from their house when they leave, and so the story is called The Key. But in it, there was an actor in the experience that engaged you first and looked you in the eye and made you feel connected and saw some stories. And then you put on the headset and you went on this journey. And then afterwards, they were there to greet you again. And then you were met by real life stories that happened. Um, it was similar to, uh, I don't know if you heard about this project called Carne in Arena, Alejandra in Aritu, who's a well-known filmmaker. And this is the first VR project that won an Academy Award. And it was installation at LACMA. And it was a huge installation at LACMA and incredibly powerful piece, but it was similar. So when you walk into this space, you're in this white room and it's the cold room, which is meant to resemble the room that immigrants when they're crossing the border and they get caught, they go in, they have to take off your shoes. And what you see around you is shoes that were left behind by real immigrants um, who were caught then you hear this alarm, this really jarring alarm, and then you go into the room, which is completely black. You put on a VR headset, and you go through the experience of what it's like to cross the border and get caught. And really intense. And then afterwards, you go into another room, and you listen to the real-life stories of people who went through that. And so this play between the physical and the digital and having objects that you can touch, real things that you saw from real people, uh, the thing that I found most powerful in that was when I was listening to the stories of the people afterwards, uh, because I just went through that VR experience of being caught going through the border, I had this muscle sensation or this body memory that I understand it a little bit more now. Obviously, I didn't go through it, but it's rather than just this mental understanding that we understand statistics, we understand sad stories, but it's the difference between the feeling and the understanding, which feeds into empathy. Yeah, I just, I think it's fascinating to think because what artists are always doing is pushing, you know, wanting us to think what it feels like to be in these shoes, what it feels like to be in a trans body, what it feels like to be in a black body, what it feels like to be in a brown body or whatnot. And it's, it's really an interesting way to sort of a new kind of tool to think about how you can provide a different sort of experience. And that immigrant or refugee experience and having a real physical response to that space, is, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, and, and I think this does kind of come back to loneliness because it's making the other feel seen. It's making the other feel understood a little bit more. There, there's this other piece that's one of my favorite pieces of all time called Notes on Blindness. 
and it's the experience of what might, might feel like to be blind. And so you go through, you hear the voice of John Hall, he's a theologian, and over the course of decades as he was going blind, he actually recorded his voice on audio cassettes. So in the VR experience, you're hearing his voice, which is really powerful, and the way they created the visuals through this point cloud system, it's um, how uh, blind people might see. And it's basically what seems like echoes of sound that go on solid objects and revert back. And even though blind people can see, the way they created the sound in conjunction with the visuals, you just started, you started to understand. You started to understand the difficulties, but you also started to understand the beauty that it can be as well. And so all of these experiences stay with me and have me, allow me to just to give a peek into someone that might not be like me. I, I, I wonder if we can like zoom out a little bit further even, and I'm curious, like, at Oculus, what kind of discussions are happening to focus on empathy and um, what kind of things are, are being observed in society and culture right now that Oculus has decided to put so many resources and attention toward situating viewers in these kind of experiences that give them more empathy? I think there's a couple things. We do have a program that's called VR for Good, where we're solely focusing on social impact projects that we think can create some level of change or allow people to understand something they haven't yet been able to understand. Um, so the key was one of those projects, Traveling All Black would fit into one of those projects. But the other thing that I think is equally important is the socializing of virtual reality. Because it allows you to think of people that it might be handicapped or don't have the um, financial ability to go to other places. And the goal of that is to bring opportunity and bring connection to people that might not otherwise through traveling in a virtual space. And there's a lot of work being done around that because Oculus is owned by Facebook and Facebook's mission is to bring the world together. Um, and that's being done across a, a, a bunch of different views, thinking about the future of how we're gonna work, bringing teams together better. Think of, you know, if you think about, I, I work remotely for the most part, and I, video calls, they just make me feel disconnected from my team. Mm -hmm. um, but if we're all embodied in a space together, then we're all on an equal playing field. And so the technology is gonna continue improving to getting to a space where we're all gonna be able to look like each other and connect with each other and see each other's nuances of facial expression without having to leave our houses. And to me, that feels more powerful than texting or doing FaceTime because there's something really powerful about our bodies being in close, in, in close relation to each other mm -hmm. and being able to see and feel someone's face. So I wanna tag onto the question you asked because I'm curious if you have in your team people doing the sort of social science research behind the work to see what that experience is really like. Because, you know, part of the loneliness is it's about a half of Americans have say that they have real kind of authentic connection in a given day, you know, with, a, with another human being. We're just not connecting. I mean, we're always scrolling. We know where all our friends are. We know where all our people have been. We know what they're doing or, or what they're showing us that they've been doing, but we're not sitting together. We're not spending time together. So within that virtual space, what's happening there? That, you know, are, they, are those real authentic connections and is that what's triggering? Yeah, and this, and this isn't a space that I personally investigate, so I can't 
speak um, too deeply into it. Uh, but it's, it's been really fascinating to see emergent behavior come. There's this project called VRChat. And it's, it's not made by us, it's made by an external developer. And it's a social VR experience where people create the world. So everything is user-generated worlds that they create. And when you go in there, you can just sometimes hear people that have met inside of there telling each other very deep things, very meaningful things to them. There's this um, YouTuber, his name is Searmore, and he actually goes in VR chat and records conversations that he has with people in there. And they open up to him in very deep ways. And then he posts those on Twitter and on YouTube and shares these stories with other people, uh, which I recommend taking a look. But one, one of the stories was this kid in South Korea. And he was, you know, he said he got bullied and his life was, you know, he had a hard time, but he found, um, he found connections within social VR. And his dream was to come to LA and start a new life. And what happened was when Seymour posted it, there ended up being this huge support for this kid in South Korea that then actually allowed him to come and travel to the United States to start fulfilling his dream. So it's interesting. You find these like interesting emergent behaviors take place, but it's still there's a lot of work to do. Um, I don't. I personally don't investigate the topic of loneliness, but the thing that we look at a lot as a company is trying to make the experience comfortable. There are challenges that come when you put a, a large social world that's somewhat anonymous and might not be comfortable, especially you know, if you're a female and you might be not, not be comfortable. So we're doing a lot of work right now in understanding how to create positive behavior, how to make a space as comfortable for everyone. Um, it's a hard problem to solve, but it's something we're deeply thinking about. Two questions come up for me, for both of you, um, is about around the topic of access. And um, maybe um, first just thinking about like Oculus and like, so how do you make virtual reality more accessible or what kind of conversations are happening at Oculus that, that are around access, like the tech, needing the technology, needing the, the, to have it, needing the funds to have the, the, the Oculus, as well as like even LACMA, like the funds to go to LACMA. So I'm curious, what kind of conversations happening to make it more accessible, you could, I could say? Yeah, there, there's definitely a friction point because it's, it's headsets and um, they're not expensive for, for what they are, but they still, they still cost money, just like anything mm -hmm. costs money. Um, we did have, a, we have an educational program and it's done a lot of donations to schools because there's also great educational content mm -hmm. within the headset. Um, and so that's one thing, but it's something that we're still continuing to figure out. Like one part is the technology itself is still foreign to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So in our metropolitan cities, people understand it. Um, we've done a, a better job about creating experiences that people can come to see in a physical location or retail stores and come to see in a physical location. But this, there's still a reality that a lot of people in smaller cities mm -hmm. haven't. Uh, so I think it's a combination of marketing. The, the really hard part about showcasing what VR can be is that it's a show-don't-tell kind of medium. Mm -hmm. So doing traditional marketing through um, commercials or prints never really create the experience of what it feels like. So I do think creating physical locations and in institutions uh, give access to people to be able to come and experience something. And so there's a lot of museums that now have VR within their locations. Um, 
we have put it in a lot of different retail stores like Best Buy where people can come in and try things out. Mm -hmm. And so we're continuing to, to do our best with it. Yeah. And then access for me is like a lot of, like Kelly, the, the work that you do relies also on artists and artists coming in to give a certain perspectives. And I'm curious how um, the, your audience's access connection to those artists and how they engage with, with them within these projects. So it, that's a question we're always thinking about. I think because we have so many artists coming, we're always looking at also how we can get off of we're in sort of a very bucolic 175 acres in Saratoga. Mm -hmm. And how do we get out of that area? How do we sort of take this question and spread it throughout the Bay Area? So this spring in May, we will launch a project called Alone. It's a, it's a billboard public art project. Again, kind of raising these questions, working with artists commissioning sites to, to continue raising this question about loneliness and continuing pushing people back to that conversation that hopefully is happening in a social media sort of context. Equally, we have an artist who will have an installation on our grounds this summer. And so Montalvo is a public park. There's not a, a financial really, there's nothing that's gonna hold you back from getting there financially except for transportation, right? So once you arrive, Whose park is it? Who belongs in that space? And who's it made for? And that's a question we're always thinking about. And um, Dionisio Hector Mendoza will do an installation in our Italian Eight Garden this summer. Because as a fellow, when he spent three months with us when, about three years ago, you know, for him that question kept becoming really prominent. You know, who is hiking here? Who is spending time here? And so he's coming back with Amelia Mesa Baines, who was his mentor, and Viviana Paredes, who was a mentee of his, to start thinking about that space, creating a space that has sort of sights, smells, ritual, memory, and that sort of experience of being a kind of immigrant to this country of Mexican, South American central descent and making a space on the property for that community which he felt was missing from the space. So we're constantly sort of pushing mm -hmm. what that means mm -hmm. and, and who is welcome in that space. And as a research, like making exhibitions and like having, having these observations through the artists and the people that you're working with, what other topics have come up that you could see like spending next year or the following year looking at that are also responsive to conditions in our society? Well, I think you know, we're spending a lot of time thinking about AI, thinking about the role of AI and, and what role it's going to play in the future. We're, we're a forest and a natural space. Thinking about the environment is something we spent some time thinking about, you know, almost eight or nine years ago. It's time to think about that again. Spent a lot of time thinking about immigration, thinking about humanity, how we're all living here. Mm -hmm. um, we've got our own history that yeah. we can contend to mm -hmm. and sort of looking at that and thinking how we take that on. Yeah. yeah. And cur thinking curatorially, do projects develop like that somewhat organically, like where a year long of working on something like spawns of potentially another year? I'm, I'm just curious how, from an institutional perspective, like you and your team decide to devote so much time to, to a topic. We have, so our artists come to us through a nomination process and we give them three months of time and we give them three years to use that time. So they tend to be breaking up their time, coming back, coming back again and building 
we put together a five-year programming plan of where we'd like to focus, and a lot of it grows organically. Mm -hmm. Our artists say, you know what, I want to do a project on the body, and I work in Adobe, and this is what I'm looking at, and then it becomes, it starts to fold into what we're doing, okay. or, you know. Yeah. It, it tends to be far more organic. Yeah. And then we have sort of spots where we know exactly what we'll be doing, okay. but allowing space for our artists and our artists' voices is really important to yeah. us. And Yelena, in terms of that creativity, that, the, that, what kind of team or your team, what does it look like when you spend a year or, a, or more like where empathy seems to be one of the guiding sort of questions and topics? Like, who, who and, 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 and what then moves the uh, organization to focus on something else? And I'm curious if there is something else then in the air that you could see, like, focusing on, say, next year or years down the road. Yeah, we're, well, we're focused on a lot. Part of it is uh, we're focused on bringing, or me specifically, I'm focused on VR storytelling. And I sometimes have to think to myself what's exciting to me versus what's accessible to a broader, a broader world. I personally love the highly experimental um, innovation pushing, but I have to also recognize that VR in itself is already somewhat foreign to people. So how do I create a sense of familiarity and, like you mentioned, access for someone to come in where they're not used to VR but feel comfortable in that space? So when we think about projects that we're funding and we're working with external creators, let's say our, our development cycle for a good project, it might be between 8 to 12 months each, and we've got um, dozens and we'll have more on our slate for this year because we're really trying to get um, a lot out. Uh, we really think about what's going to appeal to audiences. What do, what do people want? And how do we learn more about what they're watching so we can continue giving them more content that they're excited about um, as we're also continuing to push the medium forward. Yeah. So I always have my passion projects. We launched one um, uh, about three, two or three months ago. It's called The Under Presents. And it's a mixture of immersive theater uh, VR, gaming, and storytelling. And in it, it's the first time that we experimented with live actors that were in headsets, but they were in different locations. And you experience this at home. So you put on your Quest headset at home, and you go on this journey, and I don't know if you've, either of you have experienced Sleep No More. Mm -mm. Do, you know what it, do you know what it is? I know what it but is, You know yeah. the concept of immersive theater, where mm -hmm. you have live actors taking you through space. Mm -hmm. There's no proscenium. And in it, you go through a narrative, and all of a sudden, a live actor who's in a, a character who looks like a character will take you on an adventure or tell you a story or do a live act for you. And before, this was only possible within a physical location. But now, we're fig we figured out how to do it from they're in a hub in LA, mm -hmm. and you're in your home, and you have the ability to experience this liveness from anywhere. And so we're pushing the medium and continuing to learn what we can do, what's effective, what does the space within storytelling and VR mean? We're just five years in. If you think about cinema, cinema's been going for a hundred years and it's continuing to evolve and shift and people are still, people are making great films, but not every film is great, even though they've figured out the craft. Mm -hmm. And we're just five years in within this space. So there's things that we know and there's things that we're still just digging into slowly and slowly and understanding what's effective 
And part of the way we do that is we make something, we get and understand a reaction, and then we build and we shift mm -hmm. on top of that. Um, and that's across various genres. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, at first, two seemingly disparate entities that are tackling the same uh, questions that are really like part of a collective conscious right now of loneliness and empathy, partially how we like are being together physically, how and what role does social media and technology play to bring us together, to connect us, to disconnect us. And, and it's just interesting to see how like two organizations and companies are responsive to something that really is part of a kind of collective discussion right now and of ways of being together and also ways of being alone without feeling lonely, you know, so. Yeah, it seems like the world we're living in, this sort of understanding of each other and finding ways to, to bridge these spaces is probably mm -hmm. some of the most important work we can do. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think just in, in society, there is always the, the push and the pull. So when the e-reader came out and the Kindle came out, everyone thought that the book industry was going to be dead because it's so much easier to have 100 books on one little device versus having 100 real books that you have to find space for. But what they then learned is that the e-reader started to plateau because people actually loved physical objects. Mm -hmm. People are also now coming back to vinyl records. Mm -hmm. So with every push into an extreme digital, I think there's just a human nature in wanting the touch and wanting the analog back. And I see that continuing to go, that even as deep as we can go into VR and create these connections, it's not, it's, it's, it's not instead of the actual physical connections that we make in life. Yeah, I think it's really important to recognize like nuance is that in something that isn't like, isn't one thing or another, or one technology completely wipes out the other. And that we do, as humans, like engage with the world through a, a circumstances of, of nuance. And that it was believed that like books would go away, but if anyone's paying any attention to the book field, they would know that like books and book fairs and are just as incredibly popular and successful today too, as is different relationships to technology. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of how we consume culture, it's just really important to not necessarily disregard one older technology or new one as a substitute for the other, but to find ways in which one can comfortably consume and engage with them as they work for one as well too. So each summer we, we tend to open up our grounds and, and have artists, we commission them to do new work. Sometimes they're sort of interventions. And I guess I'm curious, you know, as you think about that, how, how you might think about an exterior space and using an exterior space with VR. Because several years ago I sat with my now 15-year-old son and he said, I said, so what would you do if you could do anything on these grounds? What would you do? And he was like, well, VR, of course. And I was like, well, okay. And then I experienced it with one of our composers who was, had set it up in his studio and he was composing a new piece within the Oculus. And realized, you, you know, at that point, and this was three or four years ago, you could only have a space of so many square feet and only so many people engaging. And all of this is evolving, but it's really curious to me how you sort of mm -hmm. could fill an exterior space mm -hmm. and what that might look like. An mm -hmm. exterior space within the digital space or where the headset experience actually lives and what the installation looks like? I would say combination. 
I, I, I have a passion for figuring out the best transition between the physical and the digital. So my favorite is when the installation kind of mimics the digital world inside. So the transition you go to is super fluid because sometimes it can be incredibly jarring being in a space with bright lights and then going into some world that's either touching or meaningful or completely transportive. It's not, we're not used to that in real life. So transitional spaces are really interesting right now in one, creating a comfort for people, but taking people on a journey and finding the pathways um, between that world and the digital and what we're seeing within the physical. And I've seen a lot of creativity in that lately at festivals, um, but also museums. Uh, but I do think it's important to have just as much thought, especially when you're putting up an installation on how the physical experience feels and looks, um, the entry experience as it is when you're actually inside of it. And then once you depart, and how do you transition back into the physical world as well? Yeah. I mean, from a curator's perspective, I think that's also just thinking about the ways in which people are engaging with space, both analog as well as digital space, and making these seamless connections to them so that something that you experience or see or encounter in, in reality then does seamlessly go into a virtual space. And, and whatever point or whatever position is being communicated is going to only be reinforced. And ultimately, like the viewer or the person who's experiencing is going to leave with something more um, because yeah. of that. Well, we're also working on mixed reality. And so mixed reality is a combination of me being in this physical space, but also partially being in a virtual space. So I could see you in my world, but then the rest of the world looks like we're in some forest and there's another character with us. And I'm really excited about um, that, as well as creators experimenting with it and seeing what kinds of things come up that we haven't thought of. Like my favorite thing about my job is that I have the resources to support creators mm -hmm. and give them access to different type of technology and give them the freedom to see what comes up. Because I think that's where innovation really happens. It's not me controlling it or a corporate company controlling it. It's giving the resources to a creative thinker who thinks it beyond the lines to come up with something that we've never really seen or discovered. And which, which fields are those people coming from? So within the two types of VR, well actually there's a few types of VR experiences. Um, there's the immersive video, so Traveling While Black was live video, and people from there do come from film for the mm -hmm. most part. They know how to use video, they um, have a great understanding of that. The, story, the storytelling and the writing's different, but so some, it's not for everyone, it's not for all traditional filmmakers, but for some that get it, it works really, really well. On the other end, there's computer generated, so you have to use a game engine like Unity or Unreal, and so there are people that come from animation or gaming, and that synergy between the two, where they know how to create worlds, and they know how to create interactivity, and they know how to create a space for you to be in. So that is a little more of a gaming slash animation background. We also have this tool that we're all in love with that Oculus owns and it's called Quill. And it's actually hand drawing in VR. And it's incredibly gorgeous. There's, there's a piece that was created with it called Dear Angelica. And there's something about the, the line drawing that you know is not computer generated that just feels really human. So it's more emotional. And so we're doing a lot of work right now with creators 
to, instead of drawing flat, can they draw volumetrically and the, can they create worlds that feel completely hand-drawn? And so with that, that would be a, an artist. That would be an artist shifting from flat to fully volumetric, um, but also animation. So our animation within that space, gaming and the computer-generated world, and then more traditional filmmaking background in the immersive video style. But with regard to the artists, are they coming from experience with a digital background and gaming and having that technology, or just uh, out of more of an analog? Within uh, Quill, you actually don't need much digital experience, to be honest. You just have to learn how to use the tool, but the drawing is the drawing. Mm -hmm. You'll need probably an animator to help animate it, but traditional artists or illustrators, illustrators, can pick up the tool because it's really their drawing. The computer is not shifting it or changing it. Um, so that transition's a little bit more minimal. So we had an artist with us last fall who was working, um, not with Facebook, but with a similar kind of uh, was it VR. Tilt, tilt brush, was it drawing tool? Yeah, and it was a drawing tool. And she was working with Martha Graham dance company and creating these drawings and the dancers were then responding to them creating choreography around these three-dimensional pieces that she had drawn and she's she's a traditional painter and a really beautiful yeah the projects were incredible yeah and the works that were coming were really exciting we find that artists love it because to them they've been drawing flat but in their head it's not flat. In their head, their art is fully immersive. So this gives an opportunity for them to create something and someone to actually step inside their brain. We worked with, um, uh, when I was at Future of Storytelling, we worked with the animator Glenn Keane. Uh, he was the one who animated The Little Mermaid, uh, or he was the artist for Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, and was always drawing flat. And then when we gave him access, at that time it was Tilt Brush, and he was drawing Little Mermaid inside of Tilt Brush. You just can see the sparkle in his eye of seeing his character come to life volumetrically and being able to walk around her and being able to create this whole world. It's, it's really magical. That's so great. Wow. It was a conversation we were just having this morning, thinking about the residency, thinking about the space, and... Donna Conwell, who's our curator, and myself were talking about how artists, once they arrive in that kind of space, like an environment, get to embody and they just become their work, right? And that's a space where I think the artist's mind lives a lot. Yeah. But then, then they allow audiences to come into the embodiment of their work as well, which I think is really, really special. In the past, they'd put it there for the imagination to activate their immersion of the world, but now you can actually walk into that world. So it's, uh, it's been, I've felt very fortunate just being in a space where I've watched all of the, these new things happen and watch people come in and try something they haven't before and you can see that sparkle in their eye where they're just, they're just excited about it. Well, that might be a good place for us to stop. I mean, I really, I really can't thank you both enough for like these, these different perspectives from two seemingly different fields but have really overlapping attention to like empathy and loneliness and and, and the way that we're um, engaging in the digital world and the analog world with it. Um, so I want to thank you also on behalf of Untitled um, for, for participating in this. Thank you. Thank you, James. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. This was lovely. Okay, cool. <laughs>